and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestas for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook, on Twitter at C Miriam, that's C M I R I A M, and you can listen to previously aired episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women the newly announced Minnesota Teacher of the Year announcement, and the return of the Minnesota State Legislature, this time for their third special session. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. Over the last 18 months, I have had the chance to more deeply learn about the issues facing Indigenous women in Minnesota, and across the country and globe through my other work with the uptake. In Minnesota, indigenous women have organized for years around this trauma and representative Mary Kunish Podine, who represents District 41B, including New Brighton, introduced legislation in 2019 to develop a statewide task force, which she chairs to investigate the MMIW endemic. Last week, I had the opportunity to interview representative Kunish Podine Here's audio of that interview. So, Representative Kunushkadeen, can you tell me a little bit about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement and why and what your work around this has been? Yeah. So, the um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's movement is um, an awareness of the historic trauma that uh, our American Indian women um, unique specifically and sort of uniquely have experienced over um, over time, both here in the United States, North America, and in many instances across the world, uh, wherever colonization uh, happened to be. And it's a growing awareness and a demand for uh, policy change and global change in order to uh, make difference in our, our, our systems so that this high rate of violence against our American Indian women um, and girls and boys, men, two spirits, um, hopefully gets under control and we're able to, to really address that in uh, a way that goes across departments, across jurisdictions, and across resources. Mm-hmm. And I believe you're the chair of the state task force on MMIW? I am. Um, I'm a co-chair, but I'm also the author of the legislation that brought the task force about. I was uh, elected to the House of Representatives about four years ago, and after my first year of legislation, uh, listened to the the preliminary reports coming out of Canada on their MMIW task force and uh, had the epiphany that as a legislator, I could create or I could work towards creating a task force to study this whole uh, pandemic in Minnesota. 
and so I I uh, worked with the I worked with the um, the community, the uh, Native American community, the women, and the different organizations that work towards uh, eradicating violence against women. And we uh, created a really great comprehensive bill that we passed in 2019 and have been working on um, pretty fervently for about the last year. Mm-hmm. And I know that Ivanka Trump was in Minnesota last week launching a cold case office, I believe, around um, around this work. And I know that there was also a lot of criticism that this was um, – not to put this too bluntly, but it was more related to the election and trying to grab a vote rather than doing the work. But I also know that there's work that needs to be done to try and um, how to say this in an equitable way. There's work that needs to be done around this issue. There are women that are missing. There are women who have been murdered and their their cases have gone unsolved. Can you talk a little bit about, I know you mentioned the roots of this, that there's colonization in these communities that happens and this is that impact. Can you talk a little bit about this cold case office and what you're hoping might come from the work that's being done on behalf of the administration? Sure. So um, when we had um, the protest against uh, around the, the cold case office opening, it wasn't a protest or a, a feeling of angst against opening up this office in Minnesota. And the office is um, going to be tasked with looking into the cold case murders and missing uh, indigenous people here in Minnesota and the surrounding states. And that is, you know, wonderful. That would be one of those recommendations that we would have at the end of the task force period. But what we were protesting is the fact that, Ivanka Trump came to Minnesota to basically, you know, cut the ribbon and uh, espouse on how her father is so concerned about uh, the American Indian uh, people and violence against women when, in fact, he has not been a good uh, friend to our, our Native communities or a good steward of our environment. And he himself have, has, you know, professed and and bragged about um, uh, like authoritative or aggressive behavior against women. And so uh, it just felt very disingenuous when uh, Ivanka Trump came to do that. Uh, It felt that it was very staged and um, was used as more of a, a political or a campaign ploy rather than, you know, a very general, um, genuine interest in you know this this terrible trauma that the native women and uh, communities have experienced for so long. Mm-hmm. When you work with community around this missing and murdered indigenous women around this heartbreak, what does it and around this trauma? I mean, what are you hearing from community about what they want to see happen from places like the task force and the state legislature? What kind of support are they looking for from elected officials? Well, I think uh, mostly they are looking for um, uh, a a way to work together 
and work collaboratively, especially around uh, jurisdiction between different police officers and federal agencies to address the violence uh, against women so that uh, when there is um, an act of violence against a, a woman, then they call the police. They're not dismissed. Um, they're taken seriously. They are, uh, there's action done uh, in a very timely way. And then um, also the fact that, that oftentimes um, the communities that are, are looking to get the attention of the police or get that, that security, um, they're dismissed or, you know, put off to the side or um, not greeted or met at a, in a timely manner. And then there's also the, the issues around sharing data. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how many women have gone missing and murdered because for decades and decades and maybe even centuries, nobody has kept <clears throat> that data. And the bit of data that has been collected oftentimes, you know, different agencies or programs collect it in, in different ways. And uh, so there isn't a, hasn't been a unified way of collecting the data, following the, um, the information, and then um, putting into policy and practice in a, again, in a very genuine, intentional way, uh, ways to eradicate this kind of violence against uh, women and, and other groups in our communities. Thank you for that. I'm not sure if this is something we can touch on, but I think that, you know, this doesn't, this work, this, what is happening to Indigenous women doesn't, it's not happening in a bubble. I mean, it's being intersected with issues around trafficking and poverty and police violence and just all these different conversations. Um, can you speak a little bit about what those intersections are and, and then following up what people can do as allies to stand in solidarity and to take action? Sure. So there really is a strong intersectionality in so many different ways. Um, housing insecurity, food insecurity. We know that uh, over the time of the United States, the promises of the federal government have never been kept when they, when treaties were signed and the agreement was, we will provide you housing. We will provide you um, means of education and uh, uh, farming and self-sufficiency. And those resources and services never came. In fact, they were often withheld or used against uh, Native communities in order to get what they wanted. And part of that, one of those things by necessity of, of survival um, is sort of like sex trafficking or using and abusing and throwing away American Indian women. Uh, very disposable commodity for, for many men, uh, you know, uh, in a historic manner. And so uh, the, 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 historic practice of keeping Native communities um, under-resourced and dependent on uh, governmental agencies 
has really made the difference as our communities have, have tried to bring themselves up and then always sort of been pushed back down. And so um, sex trafficking has always been uh, a part of that from the very beginning since Columbus put his foot on, on this um, continent and he wrote about that in his diaries and his journals, how he, uh, he and his men used and abused the indigenous people that he came across. And that has just perpetuated over time and, and hasn't been the same. Fortunately, you know, um, our American Indian communities are starting to stand up, fight back. And part of that is through um, becoming educated, uh, becoming, uh, building wealth, um, finding themselves, working hard to find themselves in, in positions of of uh, power and the ability to create policy change such as myself and um, so we're working hard to make sure that that's that that's um, happening in this time and age and then uh, with that we are able to make those policy changes um, such as what we're doing in the task force and so what can people do um, they can uh, support this kind of legislation uh, they can speak with their legislators and their senators, um, both at the federal level and the state level, encouraging them to continue to support these these um, efforts that we have. Um, we can look at our communities and recognize that there is uh, prostitution and sex trafficking going on all around us. And uh, again, call for our policymakers to put in in place policies that um, don't re-victimize the women and the victims that are, are sex trafficked, but going after, um, you know, the Johns and the pimps and those that are orchestrating uh, that kind of violence against our communities as well. And then um, looking for ways to support some of these different nonprofits and agencies that are working really hard to provide services for uh, women and families that find themselves in uh, real destitute times and hopefully don't have to, you know, uh, put themselves in, in a dangerous spot. Um, so uh, looking for programs that help with uh, protecting women, um, you know, how, around housing and um, different resources. and um, you know, doing what you can to support it, whether it's a financial obligation or a volunteer practice, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for saying that. Is there anything else that you think people need to know about missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, the roots of this work, or just the, the state of things in terms of the work in Minnesota? Well, I, I can say that Minnesota is really a leader in this in this area, um, and the fact that we did put together the comprehensive bill that is working across all the different commissions and commissioners and agencies in our state um, is really quite unique. Many other states have their uh, MMIW legislation, but maybe not quite as 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 well put together as ours, and I, I don't say that as a 
a way to brag, but just it was very intentional that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it across the board. And fortunately, we were able to get all of those um, those uh, agencies and programs to agree. They wholeheartedly agreed and have been working very diligently with us. And so uh, we're really proud of the task force and uh, uh, folks at DOJ and DPS that are spearheading this and the Wilder Foundation that are um, sort of uh, organizing it and, and facilitating it. Um, this is not new. This is not a new phenomena. This is happening all the time, and it happens in Minnesota. Uh, it happens across our state, across our nation, and uh, it is time that we we really recognize it, acknowledge it, and then put in place those resources that we need to, as I said, you know, eradicate it. It would just be beautiful if we had zero women traffic, zero uh, girls primed for prostitution and resell or, you know, boys or two-spirits. And so um, there might be opportunities out there for individuals as they come across, as I did. And I would hope that, that when you see it and you hear it and you acknowledge it, that you're putting in place uh, the kind of support systems that are needed. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's I'm really grateful for your time and for your leadership. Um, it's it's you know and my organization as an ally of this work i am an ally of this work and and i can always do better but it's so important that we're that somebody like you is doing this work so thank you well i i really thank you for taking the time and the effort and i know that we've we've discussed things and worked on on projects in the past together and um appreciate having those kind of friends and resources out there that we can call on when we need them as well. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks to Representative Kunish Pudin for joining me for that interview. We'll continue to, uh, continue to discuss MMIW in upcoming episodes as it's most definitely under discussed and incredibly important for all of us to be aware of and to be able to take action on. And just a reminder, you're listening to the WFNU LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Korsho Hassan, a fourth grade teacher at Echo Park Elementary in the Burnsville-Egan School District, was, the, uh, was announced as the 2020 Minnesota Teacher of the Year. The announcement was made last week at a ceremony held outside of the Minnesota State Capitol, Hassan is the 56th recipient of the award following Jessica Davis, um, the 55th recipient who also introduced Hassan at the ceremony. I was present at the uh, ceremony, live streaming it for the uptake where I work, um, and I have audio from that event of Davis' introduction and Hassan's acceptance speech. Finalists, you are all incredible and inspiring educators. I actually very much enjoyed this extended time getting to know each of you a bit more. And I can already see the ways that we'll continue to take the time to get to know and learn from one another. For instance, I know I'm gonna take the time to acknowledge each and every student and say their names every day like Duane Combs. 
take the time to find innovative and equitable ways to assess mastery, perhaps without the use of a test like Maya Kruger. Take the time to practice humility and transform through restorative justice practices like Shannon Finnegan. Take the time to enjoy the distractions in life, like when Ryan Larson was terrorized by a giant squirrel during his final interview. I have not laughed that hard in a while. I can see why your students adore you. Take the time to be vulnerable and bring visibility to students who at times may feel invisible celebrating and by celebrating their joy, like Korsha Hassan. Take the time to empower everyone, even at the ripe old age of six, to help shave positive mindsets like Maria Villavicencio. Did I say it right? Yes. I've been practicing. Take the time not only to collect resources, but ensure you know how to use them, like Katie Colson. Take the time to understand who each and every one of our students are, who their families are, where they come from, and what they need, like Omar McMillan. Take the time to listen to our students and one another without judgment, like Rachel Style. Or take the time to evaluate priorities and make courageous sacrifices in order to support others, like Katie Watlin. My time as Teacher of the Year was humbling. And I have been affirmed by the opportunities to sit in spaces of change and discover new ways to serve education. Today, finalists, in a world where there is never enough, now is your time. Congratulations to this change maker, Korsha Hassan, as Minnesota's next Teacher of the Year. Girl, get up here so we can celebrate your joy. to you this award on behalf of the Minnesota Teacher of the Year program. Congratulations. I'll put it here, okay? Congratulations. <laughs> Gotta take a second here. Salam, peace. Um, I am so humbled and honored to be your Minnesota Teacher of the Year. It already sounds weird to say. Um, Omar, I'm ready for you to pull a Kanye West move. I Watch out. Um, super surprised that I'm here. I'm blessed, but I'm surprised because during my Zoom interview, my internet cut out, and it just gave me flashbacks to distance learning and all the Zoom conferences that I had with my students and the awkwardness of that. Um, but this is, I feel like, what I would have said in the five minutes that I lost. So I'm grateful to be given this opportunity. I entered the education field not knowing how much it would transform me. In my classroom, I am empowered because I empower my students. I am inspired because I inspire my students. 
and I lead because I'm led by my students who inform the ways that I teach and see the world. I wasn't always this way, however. Growing up, I hungered to find myself in books, TV shows, movies, and games. When my family moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Hilliard, Ohio, I went from experiencing black joy in school to losing my voice and becoming invisible. As I was surrounded by classrooms filled with white peers and educators, I learned the ways to be silent because my narrative was predetermined by racism and post 9-11 Islamophobia. I felt inclined to be invisible because I was so hyper visible as a black Muslim girl. I only had one or two teachers that I felt that believed in me and who I felt connected to and showed up to me in many different ways. Sadly though, the overwhelming majority didn't attempt to pronounce my name correctly, ask me about my interest, my culture, or my faith, and I never had a teacher who represented me. I am here because of my students who have taught me to create spaces for them authentically. I meet their needs and amplify their voices, and because of them, I demand that my needs are met. My kids call me by my first name. They run the classroom with me, and believe me, this does not take away from the love and respect they have for me, that I return to them in twofold. Teaching has taught me that compliance will never be as effective as relationships. I'm radically student-centered because I'm constantly trying to be who I needed when I was younger. I refuse for anyone to dim the light of my students, to see their culture, their skin, their color, um, their language, their sexual orientation, gender or faith, or any other characteristic as a deficit. I will never allow anyone to dim their light or mine because they have rich stories, as I do, lived experiences, pain, and joy. I no longer choose invisibility because I've realized that I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. To educators, as we embark on teaching in the fall amidst a pandemic, I ask you and myself a few questions. What are the essential needs of our students and how can we embed them in our learning spaces, whether they're virtual or physical and a combination of both? How can we create learning spaces that are for unpacking racism, homophobia, anti-blackness, white supremacy, environmental justice, and so much more? How can we ensure that our learning spaces are student-centered, anti-racist, and accessible and safe for all? And no matter how we go back to school, we must examine the systems in place to ensure equity for all, especially for students of color. This fall, we all need to commit to building classroom communities that aren't just centered on standards and test taking, but for courageous conversations about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Isaac Aiden, and so much more. to political leaders, administrators, bargaining groups. The time is now to attract, but not only attract, but retain and support and include staff of color in schools. We know that structural racism plays out in education through curriculum, school policies, law enforcement, standardized tests, suspensions, the racial bias of white educators, and so much more. And we know that this leads to inequitable access to education, as our state is one of the worst states in the country for opportunity gaps. This is not by accident. Our education system is failing black students, not the other way around. Black students need to see themselves represented, 
in not just their curriculum, but in their schools. Staff of color and specifically black teachers are needed to represent, heal, and empower students of color. We need to create policies that protect black teachers, whether they're teacher of the year or not. I feel blessed to be among a cohort that is like-minded in equity and share similar passions. I know that is a common thread that ties us all together, and it's what's gonna keep us grounded and united. It's also doing this work that makes us better educators and humans, and I'm blessed to be in a cohort with you all, so thank you. Y'all rock. I'm also thankful to God, Allah, and my faith that gives me peace and reflection. I'm thankful to my family and my friends and my school community who support me when I need it the most. And I'm nothing without my mother, my first teacher. Thank you. This is for you. Thank you. Hassan will serve as um, the Minnesota Teacher of the Year for the 2020-2021 school year, which will definitely prove to be a school year like no other. Speaking of school years like no other, the Minnesota State Legislature is back. Um, the House and Senate reconvened Wednesday for votes on federal spending. And in the House, before the House was officially back in session, the House Education Finance Committee held a remote hearing on Executive Order 20-82, um, the Safe Learning Plan for 2020-2021 guidance, and federal funding for K-12 public schools that are in relation to COVID-19. We've got audio from Wednesday's informational hearing. Um, Deputy Commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Education, Dr. Heather Muller, um, possibly Mueller, um, discussed the 2020-2021 Safe Learning Plan during that hearing. Thank you, Representative Dabney. Good uh, afternoon or good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Heather Mueller and I am the Deputy Commissioner with the Minnesota Department of Education. And I appreciate having the opportunity to come and talk with you today with uh, Commissioner Ricker. So we're gonna walk you through a little bit of the learning plan, which I'm, I know you all are, are familiar with, but we'd like to just really uh, combine the information around the safe learning plan with our executive order, which dovetails into the pieces we're gonna be talking about this uh, in a little bit around GEARS, ESSER and our CRF um, dollar request. And so, Megan, could you move the slide forward? Thank you. So, in the work that we've been able to do in our partnership with the Department of Health is really be thoughtful about where it is we want to center our work as we're thinking about returning to schools. And the first thing that we identified uh, within a combination with the uh, Department of Health as well as with the governor and lieutenant governor was first and foremost to prioritize the safety of our students, our staff, and our families. And so with that, we then began to scaffold what it would look like beyond that. If that started at the center, the things that we also need to be thinking about is the second thing is we'd like to prioritize in-person learning. So if we were to have safe, uh, a safe environment for our students and staff, then how are we also going to then have in-person learning? And what we recognized is if there's an instance um, based on the, the data that um, it looks as though we can have students in school. The place we would prioritize that first and foremost is with our youngest learners and with some of our students who are most in need. Recognizing that the data that has come out um, that the Department of Health has shared um, around students between the ages of zero to 10 years old um, and the data that's coming out of South Korea, as well as information of our 15 and 19, between 15 and 19 year old students made us cognizant that we had to also be thoughtful about a differentiated approach 
to the health data that we're seeing that we are gleaning, right? Um, as COVID-19 is continuing to uh, work its process and we're learning more information, then also thinking about the recognizing the differences in the potential spread and being thoughtful about how is it that we can then prioritize our youngest learners. Um, we also thought about ensuring that we support planning while permitting flexibility for districts. We know that one size does not necessarily fit all. We're cognizant of the fact that um, some of our our um, school districts and charter schools in um, in greater Minnesota might have uh, a different look in our counties than it might be in the metro or in our surrounding areas. And so really being thoughtful about what is it uh, that our districts and charter schools need and, and what are the what are we seeing as it pertains to health. And then also taking into account um, the disease prevalence at the local level. And that was where we thought about the county data. And so that really began the, the, the path of if this was what we were thinking about for our goals, what are the next appropriate steps? Megan, could you move the slide, please? Thank you. So in that partnership in, in health, it's really thinking through this in a couple of ways. First is that we're going to use data from counties to determine the base learning model for schools. That was our step one. And that's really one side of the equation. We're going to see the equation here in a minute. Um, but really having a place to start and to give us some initial information as, as, a, as, a, as a, it says right there, a base. The second step was really thinking about then how are we going to share that data and a consultative process with public schools to engage them in education and in public health to really be thinking about then what are some of the pieces we need to be thinking about on the other side of the equation? What do we need to have in place that if we were able to bring students into, into and staff into school buildings, what do we all also need to make sure that we're able to ensure to mitigate um, the spread of the virus. And so with that, then we're developing a process around how we support schools and helping to make that decision in a consultative model. The third step in that then is then having that conversation as a school district and charter school leader with members of your school board, with members of your labor unions, with members of your community, with your families to ensure that everyone has a sense of what does the data say, what do we have in the mitigating practices, and what are some of the other questions we would ask in that consultative process. It's that way it is not an isolated or solely based decision. Um, but we also recognize the importance of having some type of local control um, because that that community and what that what that um, school district or charter school is seeing within their community um, could be different than what we're seeing in that county data. And that is why we're having the consultation. And so we'll talk a little more about that. And then really just thinking about how it is you determine what is a best learning model to start. It isn't the learning model that's going to necessarily be forever. It is the learning model based on the data that we are going to start with. And then how are we going to, in step five, continue to progress monitor? And we'll talk a little more about that. So the equation that we've talked a little bit about is we're thinking about um, from the Department of Health, the total number of cases for the last 14 days divided by the county population per 10,000 um, residents really gets us our 14 um, day county level case rate per 10,000. And so when you look at that, those bands, can we cut forward, Megan? Thank you. The, the bands are as follows. And again, this is one side of what we're going to be looking at. Thinking about if you have between zero and nine cases per 10,000 um, county residents over a 14 day period, in-person learning for all students is an option. 
and looking at that one side. If, as you go through the bands, you recognize that the more spread and positivity rates you have per 10,000 county residents, then the more restrictive the learning model uh, recommendation and suggestion becomes simply because um, we recognize that, that that spread, we also want to try to contain. And so as we are finding more ways to be able to mitigate that, that's one side that we need to be thoughtful of. And so if you have 50 plus cases per 10,000 over a 14 day period in your county residence, then you would have distance learning for all students. Now, this is the other part. So the county data is one side of the equation, something that we're thinking about per 10,000 county residents, and that serves as that, base, as that base learning model. The other piece then that goes in with that consultation is as you are sitting down with, um, with members of the Department of Health and talking about, these are some of the other pieces that we have in place. We do have PPE for district, um, for direct support services for our students. We are able to build routines of hygiene and education practices. We can also are ensuring that we are cleaning high touch services throughout the day. And this is how we're able to do that. We have a building level uh, or district level COVID-19 program coordinator, and we are limiting non-essential visitors coming in. So in some ways, as you are able to demonstrate that you have some of these other pieces that are known mitigating factors to the spread of COVID, then that may be an opportunity to become less restrictive in your model. If you were not able to do any of these things, then more restrictive would be the recommendation simply because you don't have some of the other mitigating pieces in place. And so that is part of the conversation. It is not solely based on the county data and it is not solely based on the requirements from um, based on, on health, but it is actually in tandem and also thinking about your community. We can move forward. Thank you. So really it's taking that ongoing evaluation frame, evaluative framework and thinking about the, the, the uh, on an X and Y axis is really thinking about the increase in viral activity as well as increasing public uh, school uh, preparedness and capacity to implement the mitigation strategies and ways that we're able to do that. Thanks again to the uptake for that clip. Just a reminder, you're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you all for joining us today. Just a few announcements before we conclude this 10th episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. The Uptake, where I work, is hosting a number of free community journalism trainings this month and next. The first training is this Saturday via Zoom from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Check out the Uptake's Facebook page for more details. Also, from August 20 to August 27th, RISE Film Festival 2020 will be featuring films which look at the lived perspectives of what it means to be a black person in today's society. Um, thanks to the Headwaters Foundation, by the way, for this information, um, the RISE Film Festival will include virtual screen, uh, screenings, live streamed Q&As, and more details are available on Facebook. And that's it for now. We'll see you next week for our next episode as we continue to explore social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities with a little bit of the Minnesota State Legislature thrown in for good measure. Um, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com. And you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestas for this episode's opening and closing theme music. 
And for now, you're listening to the WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. <laughs> 